Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church on this uh, snowy morning. Would you join me for the call to worship? Please rise. God makes the sun to rise and set. He causes the summer and winter to come and go. God helps plants grow and flowers bloom. He gives us food to eat, places to live, people to love us. God is always with us, always guiding us, keeping his promises to us. Let us praise our faithful God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us and for the chance to gather today to join in worship to you. We pray that you would receive it as an offering to praise to you, an offering of praise to you this morning. We offer these things in Jesus name. Amen.
come to give thanks and praise and glory to our God. And we're glad that you're a part of this gathering, whether you're here or watching on the streaming. We're glad that uh, you are adding your spirit to our worship. We want to offer you an opportunity to take a moment to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. I want to thank everyone who brought food today. We appreciate it. The, the cupboards are getting a bit bare as we continue to help more and more families. I believe this past week we helped 10 or 12 families uh, just in those seven days. And uh, there, the needs continue. And so we appreciate uh, all the contributions that are given and particularly those brought today. Uh, we are always uh, open to receiving contributions to the food pantry. And uh, thank you for uh, helping us, not just today, but throughout the year. I also want to thank all of you who were part of the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. Our goal was 250. I see in the foyer we had 265 boxes. So we give thanks to the Lord for that. And we pray that the boxes will truly be a means of helping people understand Christ and uh, open their hearts to him and to see uh, what, uh, what Christ is like and that it will be transformational. I also wanted to mention we are coming to the end of our three weeks of 24-7 prayer. Uh, the five o'clock, uh, it ends at 5 o'clock today, and at that hour, we will meet here in the sanctuary for a closing gathering. We'll sing together, pray together, have opportunity to share about what God may have done in your life as you participated, or simply what God may be doing in your life now in general. And so we'll uh, meet here at 5 and hope that you will be a part of that gathering.
should let that settle, uh, sink in for a little bit, eh? The Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 30, verses 8 through 18. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking the coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away. Till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. If you're able, would you rise and sing the doxology while the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offering? Father, would you receive these offerings as recognition of your goodness in our lives and as our uh, recognition of our trust in you for the future. Thank you so much for all that you do for us, your goodness in our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen.
Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Following the prayer of confession, we will enter into a corporate time of prayer. And if you would like to use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, when this prayer is completed, please come and join me. Let us pray together. O God, giver of all that makes life good, we gather to give you our thanks, even as we confess that we have often failed to live our thankfulness. We have a tendency to take for granted what we have. We have a tendency to grumble about what we lack. We have squandered your bounty with little thought of those who will come after us. We are more troubled by the few who have more than by the many who have less. Forgive us, O God. In this hour of worship, accept our thanksgiving. Teach us to make gratitude and sharing our way of life. And open our ears that we may hear your words of assurance and pardon. That though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we have so much for which to give thanks today. As we move into this week when, as a nation, we we take a day to give thanks, we pray that you will indeed make us people who live in gratitude every day. For you have blessed us. You have blessed us in our homes, in our work. You blessed us in our relationships. You blessed us more than, any, more than anything with Christ. And we come today giving thanks, desiring to express our gratitude with every part of who we are. We thank you, Father, for these past few weeks of prayer, this time of intense prayer. And we thank you for all the things that you have done in our lives by coming to spend an hour in prayer. We pray that the effects of this will be more than in that moment, but will be lifelong for us as individuals and as a church. We pray, Father, that you will help us to continue to see you at work and to trust you in every step that we take. Father, we pray for your gentle care upon all of your children in this world. We pray for those who suffer innocently because of cruelty for people caught in the crossfire of war and conflict, for those who are hungry, thirsty, homeless. We think of refugees around the world who who are been uprooted from their homes. We pray that you will bless them and help them. We pray for the church around the world, and especially think of northeast Nigeria today, the very dangerous place to be. We ask that you would you would watch over your children there. That they would be people of hope in the midst of often despairing circumstances. We pray, Father, that you will pour out your grace upon all recovering from disasters and, and attacks and the various forms in which they come. 
We pray for our nation. As we move forward from uh, last week's election and as we move forward in, together as, as people here in this country, we pray, Father, that you would help us to look to you. We pray that you will give us hearts of compassion and mercy and love for one another and particularly for those who are most vulnerable among us. We pray, Father, that you will help us as the church to be hope and light in this nation, in our county, in our area. Father, we thank you for the privilege of serving you in this place. And we thank you for all this food here and all the food that is given throughout the year that enables us to help people who live in need. We pray that you will help us to communicate the gospel of Christ, the love of Christ, as we give and serve out of the bountiful blessings you've given us. Father, we pray for our church. We thank you for this ministry. We thank you for the churches around us. And we pray for the Anchor Baptist Church in Wellsville, Pastor David Cassiola. We pray that your grace would be upon this fellowship of believers, that they would be bound together in your love and would be people of love wherever they go and all that they do. Father, you know the needs that we have brought with us today and the needs of those connected to us. We pray for all who are grieving, and especially as we move into this holiday time, we ask that you would bring healing and comfort to all who are grieving. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns, for Ben King and David Hartley, Mildred Berry, Doris Asepian, Blanche Weaver, Tammy Dunmire, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bob Chaubert, Laurel Buker, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Everett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who may be on our minds today. Bring healing to each of them. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for wisdom you give us in living our lives. We thank you for the healing that you do in our relationships, for giving us purpose and meaning as your children in this world, for giving us the ability to, to create and to to be agents of healing and grace. Father, we thank you for all of these blessings. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ to come into this world, died for the sins of the world, risen in power, ascended to be with you, and has promised to reappear and to make all things right. Father, make us grateful people because we see all for which we have to be grateful. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and the one who leaves us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God's wondrous grace to me he has made known, or why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. And I am persuaded that he is able, he is able to keep that which I have committed, to keep that which I have entrusted to him, to him against that day. The Spirit moves, convincing us of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. I don't know what of good or ill may be in store for me, of weary days or golden days until His face I see. But I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. He is able to keep that which I have committed, to keep that which I have entrusted to him, to I have committed to keep that which I have entrusted to him, to him against that day.
The New Testament reading will come from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Just a reminder that after the reading, children may be dismissed to Children's Church. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. If you were trying to describe what it looks like to live as a Christian, what would you say? I suspect a number of things were flashing through our minds. In response to that question and similar questions like it, I saw a recent survey. And the survey said these things. It said that um, four out of five people, Christians, agreed that the Christian life is well described as trying harder to do what God commands. It said that two-thirds of the churchgoers replied that rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. And one-fourth of the people surveyed said that they, they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than joy and gratitude. Now, I don't know if that describes you at all, any of those, but I suspect there are moments when it might. Moments when being a follower of Jesus is something that we really think about as rules and standards and measuring up and pleasing God and not getting in trouble with God. Obligation. And there's something in the human nature that that tends to gravitate toward that kind of thinking. And I'm convinced that the reason we do that, the reason we have what I would consider a skewed view of, of what it looks like to live as a Christian and think about Christianity, is because we have a skewed view of God. And I think that's exactly what the Israelites are wrestling with in the 30th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. In the verses before what we read, it's clear that uh, as you look at the context, Assyria is threatening Israel. And Assyria is the, the nation of that time, and they are ruthless people. They have left a wake of carnage and destruction as they conquer nation after nation after nation. And now they have come to Israel. They have set their sights on Israel. And Israel can see the little red dot of their weapons on their chest. And they're scared to death, as any of us might be. And in their fear and in their panic, as they are trying to figure out what to do about this mighty Assyrian nation and their relatively small army... Their first recourse is to look to Egypt and to say, Egypt's got a good army. If we give them enough money, they'll help us. They'll save us. And you have this prophecy then that Isaiah brings to them and says, in essence, why would you do that? God is standing before them saying, I'm right here. I'm in the room and you're choosing Egypt? Really? Really? And he tells them, if you choose Egypt, there's going to, there are going to be things that are going to happen and you're not going to like it. It's going to be bad. And I am convinced that the reason they choose Egypt is because they have a skewed view of who God is. Now, I understand 
why it's a temptation to choose Egypt. They are, I mean, Assyria is a visible enemy. They have swords and other weapons, and, and they are something you can see and you're going to, and feel. And when you see a visible enemy, you want a visible solution. And we do the same thing all the time. We come face to face with things. They aren't necessarily spiritual things, but they're all kinds of stuff that weigh heavily upon us in our lives. And our natural recourse is to try to find some kind of human solution to them. It, it just makes sense. And the problem here is not that Israel, that Israel is looking for a visible solution. The problem is that they don't think God is a visible solution. They think Egypt is a more visible solution than God is. And I think we wrestle with the same thing. You would expect that in that context that God would say to them, okay, fine, I've done. And he does hint to them that, all right, if you want to choose that path, here's what's going to happen. And he talks about how they're, you know, they won't, they'll be such, they'll be so shattered that they won't be able to find a shard of pottery that's big enough to hold a coal from the fire or a little water from a cistern. I mean, there's a lot of destruction. And then we come to verse 15, and God says, in essence, but if you return to me, it can all be different. It's, it's just a continually, continual reminder to us that even in rejecting God, there is grace. God continues to offer grace. And he says to them, here is my offer of grace. Return to me. Rest in me. And you will be saved. Now, in many translations, it says, repent. Some say return, some say repent. But there is a sense in which that word also has the idea of, of sitting still, of waiting. It's the word that, that Moses uses in Exodus 14. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt and they are on the banks of the Red Sea and waiting, to, looking around like, what do we do now? We can't cross this water. Where do we go? And all of a sudden they realize the Israelite or Egyptians are coming up behind them. And the Egyptians are right on, their, on them and they are stuck between these two immovable objects. And they begin to panic and they cry out to God. They cry out to Moses, why did you do this to us? We, should, we were better off in Egypt. We're just going to die here in the banks of the Red Sea. And they, they complain. And, and what does Moses say? Stand still. Watch the Lord rescue you. Stand still. And God will rescue you. Just wait. Maybe in our modern parlance we would say, just chill out. You know, just, just wait. And God will rescue you. Can you trust him for that? You can see where how that would be connected to returning and repentance. Because in essence, standing still is saying, God, I don't know how, but I believe you can do this. I know I've tried other alternatives sometimes, but now here I am. I'm going to wait on you. 
I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to trust you. Resting in God, waiting in God, that, that, that's hard praying, to be honest with you. Because it makes us feel so vulnerable. Think how vulnerable Israel feels on the banks of the Red Sea and even here as they're facing Assyria. To do, in, a, in essence, how we would describe it, to do nothing but to just wait on God. You're giving up control. And wow, we hate giving up control, don't we? I mean, we all, we, we want control. We want to be able to manage things and take care of things and do things and push buttons and pull knobs. We want to do all of it because we, we believe that the most vulnerable place you can be is to give up control. Which is why God keeps calling us to give up control. Calling us to be vulnerable. To rest in Him. To trust Him. To return to Him. To sit with Him. To listen to Him. And this is not, a, a, this is not a, an admonition to not do anything. Because after Moses says, stand still and watch the Lord rescue you... A few verses down the road, he says, okay, now let's get up and go. Let's get up and do something. But the standing still is first. And the doing comes out of that. And here in Isaiah 30, just a few verses beyond what we read, after God says to to wait, to rest, to, to sit with him, to trust him, he says, now you're going to take off and you're going to walk. And I will tell you which way to go. But the walking, the going, is a response of the being. The waiting, the listening, trusting, resting. I think one of the struggles we have with this is that it doesn't feel like we're doing anything. You know, so often, I think we wrestle to pray much because it feels unproductive. You know, and we, we want to be productive. And it feels like we're not really doing anything helpful. We're not, I mean, I love checking things off a list. You know, my outlook, I, you know, I have a task list, and I use that to its fullest extent possible. And I love that. I love being able to check things off the list or crossing out things. In fact, sometimes if I do something and it wasn't on my list, I put it on the list after I do it so I can cross it off. Now you know some things about me you probably didn't want to know. You know, because it just feels so good to accomplish tasks. You get to the end of the day, and we view a successful day as, look at the things I got done. And when you leave many things undone, it just doesn't feel like you've accomplished much. And that's how we view success, productivity. And quite frankly, how do you measure the productivity of prayer? How do we measure that? I mean, we can measure it in the quantity of time we pray, perhaps. But how do we really measure quantitatively, qualitatively prayer? Especially waiting prayer, listening prayer. The truth of the matter is, we can't. That's why it's such a challenge for us. And that's why God keeps calling us to it. And what we miss is that this kind of praying is not a burden, it's freedom. 
Because we have realized that to live our lives where we don't have to be the solution to every one of our problems is freedom. That God is there. He's present every single moment. And we are trusting him that. It's freedom. I love what... um, he says here in verse 15, after he talks about returning and resting, then he says, in quietness and trust, in quietness and confidence is your strength. It's just listening, being still. And why does it give us strength? Why does that exude confidence? Because I'm convinced when we pray and when we use waiting prayer, when we rest in prayer, when we listen to God in prayer, when we contemplate God in prayer, we begin to know who God is. And there is nothing more important for any of us to comprehend than who God is. Everything about our lives hinges on understanding who God is. And God keeps telling us over and over again in the scriptures. You see, I think that's one of the reasons why God keeps repeating to Israel, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Why does he keep telling them that? Because that is so, so core to who God is. This is the kind of God I am. And if you, unless you remember that... You're always going to have a skewed view of me. You're never going to trust me. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 46, all this chaos that's going on in the world, all the trouble and difficulty and and everything is totally out of kilter. What is the psalmist's reply to that? It's a word from the Lord. The song we just sang, be still. And know that I am God. How do we know that he's God? By being still. By listening. Waiting. Resting. Psalm 40, or Isaiah 40, comes to an end. The Israelites are again complaining to God and And saying, you've forgotten us. You don't care about us. We don't mean anything to you. And and Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Israel, that the Lord has forgotten you? Why do you say that my way is disregarded by God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the universe. He doesn't grow tired or weary. And the answer is, they don't know. They've forgotten. They haven't taken the time to be still and know that he is God. And one of the reasons we struggle so much to trust God and to believe that God is who he says he is, is because we don't give ourselves opportunities to know who God is. It's a gift. 
And what fascinates me is that when you get to verse 18, God, uh, Isaiah says, in essence, when you begin to know who God is, you feel so fortunate to be able to wait for God. Most of the time, we're not thinking of waiting as being fortunate. But here he says in verse 18 that blessed are those who, who wait. Why is that? Because they have, they have experienced God. They begin to know who God is. And he tells us in verse 18 that God is faithful. Faithfulness is not something God chooses to do. It is who God is. It's his nature, his character. He cannot not be faithful. It's the, it's the nature of God. He is love. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is faithful. And these are not things that God chooses to do as if sometimes he does them and sometimes he doesn't. It is simply who God is. We don't have to worry about it. It's the nature of God. And so even to wait on God, even to rest in God, even to, to, to wonder, not see God work, but to say, I'm going to wait, is something to feel fortunate about and to feel blessed about because we're waiting on this God. And we know who he is. And it's good. We know he's with us. We know he's at work, even if we don't see it, because this is who God is. Even God's judgment, when we know who God is, looks different. Most of the time when we think about God's judgment or God's wrath, we, we see it as the worst thing in the world. We talk about, man, don't get caught in God's wrath. Don't get caught in God's judgment. I mean, and it, it can be overwhelming. But God's judgment is just as much a part of his love as his grace is. That's why in 1 Chronicles 21, when David, when David sins grievously against God by taking the census, God says, I'm going to give you three choices. You can have three years of famine, you can have three months of the attacks of your enemies, or you can have three days of my angel bringing a plague onto Israel. And I suspect most people would say, um, I'll take the famine or my enemies. I don't want to get in the way of God's wrath. But David doesn't. David says, I would much rather face God's wrath than anybody else's. Because despite David's poor judgment and despite his sin, he knows something about who God is. And he says, God will be merciful. And he is. I think that's what Jesus is talking about at least one one extent when he when he write when he says in Matthew eleven, "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light." This is who God is. And to rest in him and to come to him and to wait on him and to listen to him is the greatest thing in the world. Because we get to know more and more of who he is. And maybe we're hesitant to do that because we're, 
We're afraid God's going to put his finger on something in our lives that we shouldn't be doing. That's destructive for us and we want him to leave us alone. Sort of like the Israelites saying to the prophets, stop telling us about all these great things of God. Just let us be. Let's do what we want to do. I don't want to hear these things. I don't want to hear what God has to say. I'm just going to do my own thing. And if that's our perspective, then listening to God, being quiet before God, will be the most agonizing thing we could experience. Because God's plan for us and his work in us is to do good for us and to bring us away from decisions that are destructive to decisions that are life in him. And so he calls us to listen and to hear him. And yes, sometimes God does put his finger on things in our lives, but he needs to. It's in our best interest. And for honest, we know that's true. When we begin to know God, we realize how many reasons we have to be thankful. When we begin to know who God is, gratitude begins to pour out of us. How can it not? How can we not be thankful? How can we not be grateful when we begin to understand the nature and the character of God? I suspect that's why... Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and says, In everything give thanks. This is the will of God for all who belong to Jesus Christ. And it's not the will of God as if it's something we we have to manufacture. But when we know who God is, of course it's the will of God. Because people who are grateful have come to understand something about who God is. And that's why this table is called the Great Thanksgiving, the Eucharist. Because it is, we come to this table in gratitude and thanksgiving for who God is and for what God has done. And in this table, we see a little bit more clearly the heart of God. The heart of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. I heard someone say not too long ago that nobody nobody takes a Sabbath by accident. And I would add to that, nobody rests in prayer by accident. It's something we do because we want to know God. We want to see Him, experience Him. So we're going to take a few moments this morning in silence to listen to God, to wait on God, and just as a model, as a glimpse of what God's asking of us, calling us to, that we might know him more.
Father, thank you for the privilege to rest in you, to listen to you, to know you. Let us see this as a gift of freedom. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We come to this table and and ask that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, we will find nourishment for our souls. We might gain a, a bit more understanding of who you are. And find ourselves blessed and fortunate. We ask all of this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you are released by your rose to come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it, and then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. We have uh, trays of cups and bread in the back. We're happy to serve you in your seat if you find it difficult to come forward or if you simply prefer. And I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you need those, please let me know as you come forward. I'd like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This may be the first time that you have been here, but if you come today with your heart open to Christ, then here is invitation. Come. Receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father. Body and blood of Christ, give them fear. Body and blood of Christ, give them fear. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. 
Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all among me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved, no one wealth of grace is thine. No, thy certainty of promise, and have made it mine. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy loving Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart, satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies my every need, compasseth me round with blessings, thine is love indeed. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee. Resting beneath thy smile, Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face. Keep me ever trusting, resting, fill me with thy grace. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Children of Safely in his bosom gather, nestling bird nor star in heaven, such a refuge there was given. God his own doth tend and
benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.